When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hale, you know, as a member of our Real Vision community, I want to give you something special. And that special thing is early access to our massive Black Friday sale, which starts on November the 16th with an incredible discount plus some more free stuff for you. You see, for me, getting prepared for 2024 is key for all of us. It's going to be a banner macro year. We've got a US election, a crypto bull market, we've got rate cuts to come, we've got technology, we've got everything at play all at the same time. And you need to be prepared for all of that. So take advantage of the Black Friday sale. You guys get in early, November the 16th. So realvision.com forward slash early Black Friday. So realvision.com forward slash early Black Friday. Take advantage of the offers right now and set yourself up for an incredible 2024. Thanks. Is the Goldilocks forecast too good to be true? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jem Carson, founder and senior managing partner at Kai Volatility. Hey, Jem, it's great to see you again. It's always good to be here. Great to be, great to see you. So we have some really interesting action to talk about. Um, we're anxious to get your thoughts, but I'm surprised. I, I just did a last check and stocks managed to edge up after being lower, not significantly lower, but after the, that sort of monster rally we've seen, uh, looked like they were going to end in the red, but the NASDAQ tipped in positive territory, S&P up a tenth of a percent, only the Dow and Russell were down. And it's been an unbelievable, that's on the back of not only the rally this week, but a really good looking November. Uh, the NASDAQ, I think 9% so far, S&P up 7%. I mean, it's such a big move. We saw data out today that showed continuing claims for jobless benefits here in the US at their highest level in two years. Factory data, home builder sentiment was also lower. So that sort of combination was enough to, to have treasury move, uh, tre see treasury bond yields moving lower again. So Jim, last time you were on, I seem to remember, and I went back, you sort of, in, and that was September, walked us through this really detailed roadmap on why we were likely to see this happen, especially if we were paying attention to the structural flows um, that you watch so closely um, and you really felt like we're going to start to have an effect in the no, sort of November timeframe. Um, and it looks like it played out to a T. To walk me through you know, what you've been watching and how this is how this is when looking on your radar. Yeah, just to review, we were saying, you know, somewhere between 44,000 and 4150, as long as we didn't lose 4,000, it was a, it was a screaming buy and and that the market should do a pivot on November 1st, and that's exactly what happened. 40 4107 in cash is where we I think bottomed and November 1st was the day. Um everybody would point to macro this and macro that, you know. Yeah, macro matters, but uh, this time of year you know, all these structural flows are overwhelming. And in the context of uh, macro flows that are negative, but maybe not negative enough, um, they will get overwhelmed. And that's what we saw. 
Yes, we got some positive macro. Like you're saying, sorry to interrupt, but like, yeah. Um, but we did mention on, on the pod here too that we would expect that the the Fed would start to, given the liquidity at the end of the year and the and the way bond yields were kind of pushing higher, uh, the war in, in uh, you know in, Ga- in Gaza, et cetera, that that they would blink, and they blinked a bit down there, um, and that Treasury would probably shorten their issuance and um, also kind of slow down a little bit of of um, of the issuance as well, and they did that as well. And again, that's the reflexivity of policy as well. It's not just the reflexivity of markets. So that, the, the probabilities point in that direction, and the markets uh, all they needed was a a little a little push. They didn't need much given those structured flows, and and I, I would argue they probably didn't even need that. Uh, the path would have been maybe a little less steep, you know, if that had been the case. But uh, but yeah, it's pretty. These structural flows are are hard to deny. Does the fact that we're seeing some of the economic data start to to work along with that sort of, you know, slowing inflation scenario, does that just help that? Does that just give them an extra push or is this sort of happening regardless and we shouldn't pay that many attention to the headlines? It matters, right? Uh, it matters to the extent it affects liquidity. Um, I mean, macro is a Reuters ring block test, right? Uh, people at some point will start saying, oh, the economy, we're going into recession, right? So, you can decide is a recession bad for the market or good for the market. Let's let's debate, right? And and the point is you can you can see it how you want to see it. If the market's up, it's good. If the market's down, it's bad. And the reality of the situation is it's good broadly because it increases the amount of liquidity provided to markets, and that is ultimately what matters in the short term. Um, a stock value is a function of supply and demand. There's just less supply, you know, in that context. So I think that's really important. That said, again, there's reflexivity. The more the market rallies, you better believe that the Fed's going to start coming in and uh, talking down kind of uh, economic effects and start mm-hmm. selling, you know, proverbial calls, you know, and and you better believe that the Treasury is going to take that opportunity to accelerate issuance because the market's taking it well and there's liquidity. You better take it while you, while you can, right? So, you know, there is a ball dampening, mean reverting function here that I would not lose sight of. That said, I think the structural flows, which are more consistent and less immune to these these whims of emotion and reflexivity, is um, are much much stronger. And that that's the thing that's really the kind of the finger on the scale. So when we're talking about structural flows, you you know you you sort of categorized them last time, but what are you looking at now? So you called it. You got that that um, you know that market turn. We've seen what's happened in November. I mean, it feels like we've already lived the month, I think probably because we're coming up on a holiday too here in the U.S., but we've still got days to go in November. So how do you see this playing out from here? Is this Are the structural flows just going to continue to pick up momentum? How does this work? So the flows are fairly immutable. Like the function that drives them, uh, yes, that, that, that function is not just a linear buy function, right? There's, uh, there's certain nuances to it, but those flows and the function that governs them is fairly immutable. Those things have to happen, um, you know, tied to like their, their their reaction function. That said, there's other things other than these flows, which are you know entities getting out, knowing that the flows are there, getting out in front of them, right, trying to push things higher. The reflexivity that comes as a function of them and for, to policy and positioning. So all of those things matter and play against it. That said, those flows are coming and they're dramatic and they're significant. So the question is: Is there enough supply? that's been created to counterbalance and slow it down. But regardless, you have these flows. So what does that do? That really takes the left tail down, 
right? Mm -hmm. Does that mean we're going, you know, dramatically higher? Uh, probably higher, but but hard to say, right? Those flows are coming, and that's inc that's incrementally good. That that softens the downside. I often kind of uh, try and give imagery. It's like a you know beach ball underwater, right? That, that every time the market does decline, you're going to get these positive flows. But does that mean we're going to go exponentially higher? Um, hard to say but it does change the distribution dramatically. Why? Let's review real quick. I have six reasons here that I want to kind of touch on real quick. And we've said these before, but I think it's really important. First, it starts with vol supply. There's a massive amount of structured product issuance and vol supply, particularly in this window. That means dealers are long volatility. Uh, that means uh, they are, uh, they're forced to, as the market goes up, sell, and when the market goes down, buy. That It starts there. But importantly, a lot of that structured product issuance is in the December uh, you know, uh, the December end of uh, quarterly, the January, all of these are the biggest expirations of the year and the biggest issuance of the year because they're the end of the year. And all of that is potential energy. It's a potential, it's all short put to dealers, short stock that they have to buy back. I uh, call those, you know, the Vana charm flows broadly. Those have to come, come back. But now, not only do you have this big potential energy, not only is vol compressed, so it's more likely that we, you know, the, the tail doesn't appear and that that stock has to be bought back. But now you have an acceleration in time because we have all of these holidays, not just the holidays themselves, but the days around it where people don't work. Thanksgiving is not just the Thursday. Nobody's working Friday. Nobody's working Wednesday. Christmas isn't just Christmas days. It's, uh, it's all the days around it. And so, so that accelerates the amount of volume weighted time, I call it. The amount of volume that happens this time of year as a function of time, right, is 30% is lower than any other time uh, during the year. And that just means 30% more of an acceleration for the holidays happen right in these windows of weakness right after expiration. Thanksgiving is coming right next week, right after this expiration. December, same thing. Those are the most dangerous weeks and nobody's here. Yeah. And so we're accelerating right through the most dangerous periods and going to the good stuff. And so that that matters as well. It's important to note that there's very low liquidity at the end of the year. People are closing their books, less people are participating. That means the average amount that takes to move markets is lower. And if you have these positive flows in the context of less liquidity, that can mean even more upside. There's just less that can absorb it. And then lastly, most importantly, actually, best for last, is it the market up 18% for the year? Uh, call it 20% just to make the math easier. If we have $100 trillion of equities globally, that's $20 trillion of new collateral that's been created. That's new money. I'm not saying 20 trillion is going to work Jan 1. It goes to, to work through, through the year as it goes as we go. But we just had a big rally. So a lot of it's coming now. And on top of that, you have some that has a lag that doesn't go to, to work until the first of the year. If it's 10%, which I think it's actually probably more, that's $2 trillion to go to work in the context of a market that takes about $50 billion to move on a daily basis. It's a, it's a huge tidal wave of buy demand. And so this is why Santa Claus exists. This is why <laughs> this is why you, the January I tell you, when it, when it, shield the children's ears, but that's, <laughs> that's amazing. No, kids, Santa Claus is real. That's the crazy. That's the headline, right? Crazy it's like headline. you know, um, the the reality is it's not a mythical construct. It's a real thing. Santa Claus comes for a reason, and uh, but there's also you know the January effect that that follows him after that, and those are the most positive four weeks of the year in a positive year. And that's an important kind of driver to these flows. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Amazing. So if we're looking at this now, given that, should we think about it? I think people are nervous when they see the speed of the move that we just had. And so they're torn and we get a lot of questions around this. Do I chase it from here? If we see this sort of rally, the Santa Claus rally into year end, do I get in and take advantage of it? Or do I try to hang back, especially for those people who've been sitting in a lot of cash because it's been yielding? Do I do I sit back and then try to buy the dip? Like, is it inevitable that we're going to get a dip? How should people be thinking about this against those flows and seasonal aspects? You just no guarantees about? you're going to buy a dip. Um, I'm out here talking about this. Other people know about it. And the weight of the evidence is strong. That's why markets are running like they are. That said, um, they've run quickly. And could we get some digestion in and, and both time and price? Yeah, probably. We're entering a more, those positive structural flows are now are, are now um, off the table for a little while, for a short period. But they're going to be accelerating, coming back quickly. So during this specific week or two, you know, it's more a function of, of how many people are going to try and buy it to get out in front of what's coming after it, um, less about the structured flows. And um, it's run quick. You might you might get a pullback. You might get some digestion. Again, this is what you'd expect here, right? Just some sideways action given the demand's not there, but people still know some other stuff's coming eventually. So my view would be, yes, uh, buy this, but buy it as a function of time and price. Be patient, but uh, but you don't have uh, much longer than a week or so. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then when you're back in that was positive periods, you gotta you gotta you know ride this. You're positive with a trailing stop uh, at the 20 day uh, on a closing basis, a couple of days basically, and I think that's the trade. Mm. What d- d- we've seen a big move. By the way, when we're talking about all of this, if, if at any point you need sort of like a refresher. Remember on the platform now, you can bookmark it, you can put a note in, you can use the AI to go, and you can, of course, check out all the options stuff on the Academy. We have Jim give us a masterclass every time he comes on with us. Thank you for that. Um, but if you need to sort of just put, make a note for yourself so that you can go back and um, dig into it more, do that. We've got some Black Friday specials, some crazy ones on leveling up if you want. Brian, if you could stick all that info in, Members have access to it now. The rest of you will have access to it next week and we'll make sure to give you all the information, um, but some really good stuff. So check it out. So we have been in this period where treasury yields seemed like they were driving everything. We've seen a big move on that side as well. Do we have similar dynamics happening? How, how are you looking at treasury yields? So going into the end of the year, if you believe what I believe that these structure flows are going to keep pushing the market or holding it up at the very least, but but incrementally pushing it higher. The Fed's reaction function is, and the Treasury's reaction function, as I mentioned, are pretty, pretty clear. Uh, issuance is likely to increase into that because they want to get it out of the way. They want to to raise that that capital while they can. 
you know, next year. They want to, they don't want to be providing this negative liquidity to the market in an election year. The Treasury doesn't. I'll be, you know, that's pretty clear. And then the Fed um, is going to not want the market to run like that as well, um, because that reflexively will stoke inflation and get the economy hot again. So, uh, you know, we've already been seeing that since we got this five, six percent pop in the market. Um, that you know, we're seeing more Fed speakers come out and start to say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 hold on!" You know, remember what we said like just a week and a half ago? Disregard, right? <laughs> um, and so, I would expect that to to incrementally provide uh, pressure yields. On top of that, I think an important thing that people forget is that at the end of the year, institutions, from a regulatory perspective, have a need to keep hard capital on their books um, mm. for that December thirty first um, push. So, so you end up getting a lot of um, support to yields into the end of the year and demand for capital, which would which should support you know yields not collapsing, if anything going you know uh, a little bit higher. That said, uh, you know that's the short term view. We're talking about a couple months here, month and a half. Um, once you hit January, our belief is that we are going to get some type of general uh, market decline. Um, I think bigger than what we just saw, uh, probably from higher. And uh, this is back half of January into February. And if that does play out, again, if we get the rally and then the decline and the yields uh, were just kind of artificially held up, I think at that point, the yields can come down a, de- a bit. Um, and I think that the story then will be disinflation, all the stuff that you've heard, and everybody will start drinking that Kool-Aid again. I think at that point, ironically, that you're going to get a, a, a steepening. And I think that the 10-year will actually not decline that much. And then I think uh, short-term yields will start to walk down. And ironically, I think as that steepens, eventually now we're going to start playing the next leg higher in long-term yields. So I think that's the kind of the first step is support here more than people expect into the end of the year. Then eventually when the market tops and declines, uh, you're going to get yields kind of come back in a little bit, maybe in the three handle. And then um, I would expect that sometime, you know, as we get midway through next year, that uh, or a longer, you know, maybe towards the end of next year, you're going to start to see those yields really start to wake up at the end of the curve and start chasing the front running what is a hotter cyclical uh, liquidity effect uh, from Fed stimulation coming back, uh, or at least uh, stopping the war against liquidity, right? And at the same time, you know, start start seeing the the, the structural effects, uh, demand effects that already exist locally pairing with that to cause more structural inflation. So our, we're, we're long-term uh, inflation, uh, but we think that in the short term, you will see a recessionary uh, kind of pivot by the Fed. Ultimately, when they do, that will be the next big leg higher. Uh, but I think there's some time between here and there. Yeah, I, I remember that you're in the sort of camp of more, uh, sort of a different inflation regime now, not that. Uh, interesting question, um, let this handle, the market is rigged. <laughs> Uh, it's like gives us an indication of the perspective. They say you mentioned last year that when the talk of Goldilocks gets traction, the pain trade will follow. Do you see it happening next year? I do. The soft landing talk will, you know, we're already starting to hear it. I think uh, there'll be more. There, there's again time between here and let's say February, where the market I think will go quite a bit higher and then lower and then a lot of. Uh, uh, there'll be a lot of talk between there about how the Fed managed things and things are doing okay. Victory do, laps. They're, yeah, they're victory kind laps. of already they're already I, happening. I, I think when that happens again, we'll see that you know that next leg higher, uh, and that's probably going to involve again a Fed pivot and the cyclical flows coming back 
to pair with the structure flows uh, and will get us a, a next like higher in inflation. Next year is an election year too. So it's not just the Fed, it's the fiscal response that's likely coming next year. I, I would 100%, you know, if we get any pullback in Jan, Feb, March, the amount of fiscal response and the speed of which it comes is going to be, um, it's going to be amazing. And you can quote me on this. They're all going to be tied to the inflation, whatever, right? Everybody's going to be, uh, we're, 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 you know, it's, it, it, we're going to be battling inflation and, but with fiscal policy that makes it all worse it, again. So. Yeah. And that has of course been such a big contributor for what we've been dealing with, you know, all of the, the lag effect of that. And it, that's a, that's a new situation. We just have not had fiscal participating in that way for many years. And now we do, and everyone's trying to figure that out. So figure out what, you know, what that means. And especially when it comes to the time frame of when it starts to hit the economy and inflation, that's been, it's been a, one of the things that really upended people this year, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing how long we've been saying transitory, right? Um, and that demand just keeps on clicking. Um, and that's the reality. You're going to keep getting money to demand. And that's ultimately what drives inflation. The Phillips curve matters again. The more we close borders and you can't you can't just uh, keep inflation down by exporting and, uh, you know, and, and by giving money to technology and, you know, uh, accelerating uh, the, the effects of, of 0% interest rates on margins. Um, so, yeah, at the end of the day, we're a closed system again. Uh, the more we have deglobalization and uh, whatnot, and, and that closed system ultimately means means there's more inflation. Uh, Doug asking, when does this liquidity begin to drop? The structure, which which liquidity, I guess, would be which my question. Are you talking Doug? about the, <laughs> these, the, the, uh, the structured flows I'm talking about? Well, let's guess. Let's start there. Let's guess on that. Yeah, the, the structured flows, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, should be strongest into the end of the year, um, you know, uh, into the first week of the year. And then there's, you know, that hands the baton to kind of some of those bonded charm flows in January. Uh, January 17th, again, would be a date. If I if you ask me the exact date, we got the November 1st part right for the pivot. So so I'll, I'll, I'll throw January 17th as the next pivot down. Oh my goodness. We're going to write that down because that is crazy. It was, it was exactly November 1st and wow, did it take off. So well done on that. Okay. Some really great questions, everyone. Okay. So let's see. Frank saying, if the market starts to weaken mid-January, are you seeing a stair step down playbook similar to 2022 or would the market take a more violent approach down due to less hedging? Um, couple, couple things to that one, first of all, it depends as always on where are we starting from? So, um, uh, this decline that I'm talking about would be off the table if the market's still here, um, come January 17th. I'm not just saying, Oh, the market's going to decline for, for, you know, at the S and P is 2% lower than here. There's not much of a decline coming in January. Okay. Um, that's a, that's, a function of it's a it's a conditional function. So if if we if we go up during this period, and there's a lot of flows that make that likely, and we go up not just a little bit, but we go test somewhere just below or just above the all-time highs, which I think is likely, that would be the perfect time to to roll over. Why? Because as we do that, a we're creating more potential energy. We've kind of pushed. Uh, you know, uh, the market higher and now we're further off the ground. And then on top of that, uh, as you go, the ball on those calls is really low. So we're going to get to a really low implied ball, which tends to bring back buying and ball and tends to change the ball supply dynamic, which is very important because, you know, calls are on a much lower ball. So you slide structurally onto a much lower fixed strike ball. And then uh, on top of that, uh, you squeeze short. So a lot of the 
Um, the positioning naturally changes as you go higher. Everybody gets forced back into the market, and that creates a supply-demand balance the next time the market sells off, right? At the end of the day, if there are a lot of people short in the market, um, that creates demand into a declining market. But if you squeeze out the shorts and push the market higher, there's a lot of times why we get these blow-off tops. Then the amount of liquidity to, to support the market into a decline is gone. So you have multiple things that play out into these uh, structured kind of blow-off tops that often lead to much bigger, more volatile declines, and they tend to happen at the end of a cycle. So if that happens, I would expect it to be relatively volatile, but you'll know when you get there, right? It's yeah. a function of seeing those signs that I'm talking about. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Jason asks, uh, what's your take on commodities, more specifically WTI and crypto, during the time frame that you're discussing? Um, crypto and tech are, um, I, my personal view is in the short term until January will will do very well because uh, they're, uh, and it'll be very counterintuitive, much like it was earlier this year. I think yields will hang in. Uh, during that time, and duration shouldn't do all that great, right? And there'll be more talk of recession, but uh, yet yeah, tech will do, you know, uh, but that's just a function of supply and demand. So I would expect that to be the case. Same with crypto. I think crypto and tech are are kind of lump, you can lump them together there. Um, in terms of commodities, um, I do think uh, I'm very bullish of commodities broadly, but I think this is going to be a period where they, it more muddles through. I mean, it'll do okay, but I don't think it'll do much better than the S&P. Um, so WTI oil, um, I think, um, you know, kind of sideways, but oil stocks will do relatively well. Um, that said, I want to be clear secularly, and I will be, continue to say this, uh, uh, commodities, particularly industrial commodities, are a great place um, to be. Um, in this next several year cycle, if not like a five, 10 year cycle, I think it's going to be uh, much, much more risk reward in that area than it is, than in tech uh, personally. But I think this is kind of the last hurrah uh, on, on what I think is likely some type of blow off top. Uh, fascinating. We'll, we'll, we'll have to talk more about that um, in, a, in another show um, because that's a longer term view, but super interesting. And as you know, it's something we debate all the time on Real Vision, and we have a lot of people in each camp. Uh, this is a an interesting. Um, okay, I got a couple of quick questions. Ralph saying, can you define the term fixed strike vol? Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty straightforward. I think it gets really confusing for people. Um, Every option has its its own implied volatility. It trades on an implied volatility. The implied volatilities of strikes that are on the downside in the market are higher than they are on the upside. Why? Because there's more risk to the downside. Historically, markets move uh, faster to the downside than the upside, although that hasn't been happening this year. Um, but uh, there's more risk, importantly, to the downside. People are hedging, they're buying puts because the world is long, right? If you eat, sleep, breathe, you're long. If you have a job, you're long. If you if you have a home, you're long. Um, so if you live, you are long and, and the world needs to hedge downside. They don't buy upside insurance, they buy downside insurance. And, uh, and they sell upside insurance to fund it. So at the end of the day, that creates skew, all right? So if there's skew in the marketplace, or higher implied balls, when the market goes down, the actual products that make up the implied volatility that's traded in the market goes naturally to a higher price. 
So when we talk about, everybody talks about the VIX as some type of measure. That's VIX is floating ball. It's just a theoretical ball. But in terms of real pricing, it's priced off the options. So if nothing happens to the volatility surface, the you know the volatility smile, let's just call it, and you go down, the market goes down, you go to a higher vol, the VIX naturally goes up. That doesn't mean people are buying volatility. Actually, uh, many times the VIX goes up with the market down, but implied volatility is down uh, in real terms, in VIX strike terms. Um, you know, we can slide from a 20 vol to a 30 vol on the curve and, and then uh, but but the vol now goes to 25. Well, the vol's gone down five points in reality, but the VIX is showing it five points higher. Um, so the point here is fixed strike vol is the implied volatility that the actual at the money fixed strike is on. Um, and so measuring fixed strike vol is actually the real fear indicator. It's the real function that tells you what's happening to demand in the vol market, as opposed to what's sold to you in terms of a VIX. Uh, you know, again, mm -hmm. a VIX is just a measure of what the actual floating ball is. It does not tell you anything about supply and demand and realities of the ball market. Super important. Thank you for that. Thank you for the question, Ralph. Uh, Doug asking, is there one indicator you like to watch as a liquidity bellwether? Not one. No. I, had a I wish it was that simple. <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> it's simple, After right? I think, I think the, you know, the realities are... Uh, these are functions uh, and they are all interacting in a very relatively complex way. That said, it's a machine with gears and, uh, you know, different uh, doohickeys, right, that are that are moving, moving the machine. And the more you understand about the components, the better you are predicting where it's going to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you do such a good job of, of focusing our mind on that. I always think of it, and we've talked about this before, it's like a 3D heat map when you're talking, which I think is, is really useful. Um, C-H-E-D, Ched, um, asks, I hope to get an update on the new structured products that are becoming available. Are they gaining adoption and how can retail participate? And evidently, these are structured products that maybe you mentioned in your last appearance with us. Thanks. Yeah, so structured products broadly, right? Um, so important to note, uh, derivatives were created in the 1970s. Um, as a, And people forget why. Why were these created in the 1970s? Because interest rates were in the teens uh, or higher. And people wanted a, a way to invest more capital efficiently. Um, you know, a derivative, a derivative is just a contract between two people that allows them to exchange the exposure without actually investing the money. People forget about that. Mm. That's a critical thing. The capital efficiency of derivatives hasn't mattered for a long time because interest rates have been zero. So who cares if you're being efficient with your capital? But when interest rates are five and a half percent, guess what? Um, if I can get that five and a half percent and then just use that thing for collateral to then take directional, you know, uh, more, more risk um, in the market, um, that's a way better, way more efficient way to approach um, uh, investing. We do that under the hood. A lot of entities do that. That's why derivatives are so valuable. Um, the structured products do this on a much simpler way, right, which they take that yield. And then they use that to uh, to invest in one way or another to get a hedge or to 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 sell vol to capture kind of an extra yield or to do any number of things uh, with that collateral to to get an extra yield on top of that that uh, risk free yield. And so uh, there's any number of structured products that do this, and there's more and more coming to market. Why? Because again, it's not. Uh, if you can make 8% uh, in a structured product that's non-correlated, that's kind of a diversified way to get another 2.5% kind of low on top of the 55 but not take market risk, that's pretty appealing, 
right? Particularly in a market that's gone sideways for two years, if not down, right? That has significant mm-hmm. risk we've talked about. So, you know, these types of products probably yielded 4% a couple of years ago, right? Um, 8% is way more appealing. And a couple of years ago, the market had been up for, you know, more or less 13 out of 15 years, um, and an average 15% a year. Why was yeah. anybody going to come buy a 4% non-correlated product when the market's been kicking off, you know, 12 to 15% a year for over a decade? You know, the, the, the realities are that it's much more compelling in this environment. And there's a massive increase in issuance. The knock-on effects are what's important. So where can you get these, I guess? These are issued by banks. They charge a hefty fee for them. Uh, you're better off going to the market directly if you can figure out a way to do it and doing it yourself. Um, but the reality is uh, they're still appealing, even with a 1% fee to kind of your local bank. Um, and, uh, and and again, much more appealing than a, a 0.2 sharp uh, you know, equity market, which is what the equity market is over its long-term history, um, particularly given where valuations and the risks in the market are. What a great question. What a great answer. And it sounds like this is something that we should probably do something on, um, Real Vision, since I, I think you laid out, you know, why they're much more re- relative relevant and and potentially attractive now. So thank you for that question. Um, And we'll keep you posted. We'll try to do something on that. Um, We're almost out of time. Um, We have mentioned that uh, Raul's doing an AMA tomorrow, Drinks with Raul, um, which you know how that goes. Uh, I recently, as you know, I was away for um, a clubby event for Real Vision. And I caught up with some of our regulars and knowing that we were rolling up for this, asked them what their favorite drink was just for some fun. I know you are all connoisseurs in the audience. So let's have a listen and then we'll talk to Jim and get his thoughts on the other side. End of a long week. What's your favorite cocktail uh, or drink of choice? I like, but I shouldn't. Uh, no, I like uh, what is the name? Um, Pisco Sour is my favorite, but it's so dangerous. <laughs> So I, yeah, I love Pisco. Pisco Sour is great. I like it. Or Bellini. I like Bellini. It's safer Pisco Sour otherwise. Favorite cocktail. It's got to be a, uh, well, I have two. Okay. Okay. I love margaritas and I love uh, dirty martinis with extra olives. And in fact, if they're stuffed with blue cheese, even better. One is, uh, it was called Blood Meridian which is obviously after the, the novel. Um, and it, it has a very unusual mix of things in it, um, including mezcal and um, several fruit, small amounts of fruit flavored, you know, like hibiscus and that kind of thing. And then uh, a kind of fire water, you know, a tincture made of, of habaneros. And, and it's just, it's, it, 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 it doesn't taste like anything else. You'll notice no one in that crew said kava, which we know Raul is always waxing poetic about. Jim, what about you? What what would be your drink of choice? Oh man, it depends on the mood. Um, there's a a drink called the Southside uh, that's from here in Chicago that is absolutely delicious. That I that I encourage people to take a look at. Pretty simple: mint leaves, lemon juice, uh, gin, simple syrup. Uh, you know, very very tasty cocktail. Uh, that's a more of a summery drink uh, in the in the fall and winter here in Chicago. I'm going to go extra dirty gin martini 
um, you know, uh, olive juice, herby kind of gin, uh, hard to beat. Uh, but, uh, you know, okay. sometimes Negronis and uh, old fashions as well, if the mood, mood fits. I, I love it. We definitely have some old fashioned drinkers in our crew. And this is really for the DB chat. If you are not a member and you are not participating in our chat, come over. We have some really serious food and beverage people and we appreciate it. Um, but I'm with you. I just discovered that that Gemini share a, a love of gin, which is super exciting. So hopefully we'll get to do something in person. We got to get together. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have to do it. We have to do it. Oh my gosh. Somebody's saying a Maghattan. You guys kill me. Anyway, <laughs> we just thought that was so fun. It was great to see Rosie and Diego um, and D in person. We had a lot of fun and hopefully we'll, we'll get to do it again soon. Um, but Jem, thank you so much, not only for the drink recipe, but for the immense wisdom you give us every time you come on in this whole world of sort of options and derivatives that you watch. It's becoming more important for all of us to understand it. So we just so appreciate you being so generous with your wisdom. It's a pleasure, Maggie. Thanks so Take much. Care. Happy Thanksgiving thanks. to everybody. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to everyone. Listen, programming note, um, Crypto Academy is out, as you know, the first few episodes. Uh, if you need any help, you can always reach out to Milton for both that and the Black Friday deals that we have. Uh, the NFT is minting. For those of you who want to and have not yet, there are still some lifetime access passes available. I think we got them to extend it a little bit. So go to realvision.com forward slash crypto academy to find out how to join. Thanks so much, everybody. Fantastic questions. The ones we didn't get to, we'll file away and make sure we bring them up again next time Gem's on um, and maybe do something, a breakout on some of those new structured products. And uh, that's it for me. It's my Friday, so I might try that South Cider, but Raul is here tomorrow for the drinks with AMA. Get yours, roll up and join us. Maybe I'll come in the chat if I manage to get my hands on one of those South Ciders. In the meantime, everybody take care and good luck out there. Crypto is a very complicated space and it requires a lot of understanding, not only of the crypto markets, but how it fits into the broader macro landscape. These guys are about the best people to take you through that journey of knowledge. We'll spend the next few minutes discussing and exploring the things that you should be looking at to make sure you have a better grasp and a handle the drivers that affect crypto. Knowing how to trade these two is going to really protect your portfolio. The first thing to hear about here is that the risk profile is completely different. Make sure you're using those tools to your advantage to help you gain an edge in the uh, in the trading of NFTs. I think it's an incredibly valuable learning for people to get your experience and your take from applying that traditional investing framework into this wild west of, of crypto.